One of the most significant technology trends over the last decade has been the shifting of services and computing power to the cloud, which not only provides better, more accessible services, but it also helps to drive down costs. COVID-19 has served to accelerate these efforts as companies stood up remote work operations, business operations moved online, government agencies scrambled to deliver services through digital channels. According to a McKinsey survey, more than 67% of CEOs reported accelerating the adoption of digitization and automation technologies over the last year. VMware powers much of what we experience online every day and is helping companies and governments make these shifts to the cloud. We're joined this week by COO Sanjay Poonen, where we discuss some of the insights and lessons they've learned over the last year, including the surge of telemedicine and how VMware helped Moderna with developing a life-saving COVID vaccine. We also discuss cybersecurity and VMware's pledge to close the workforce gender gap by 2030. Sanjay, thank you so much for joining us today. First, VMware is one of those companies that powers so much of what we experience online every single day, but many aren't aware of it. So talk to us a little bit. What is it that VMware provides? Thank you, John, for having me on your podcast. And I hope you and your listeners are doing well during these tough times. We, the world is going through this unprecedented crisis. Give you a little bit of context. VMware is one of the top six software companies in the world. We have pioneered this notion of virtualization. The V in VMware is virtualization. The VM is virtual machines. A few founders of this company, Diane Green being the first CEO, her husband and a few others, founded the company out of research that was being done at Stanford a little over 20 years ago. And the idea was to do in software a lot of what was done in hardware to make data centers more efficient. And what happens when you pool a lot of the hardware servers, you can save money cheaper and also, more importantly, energy efficient. In the early days, people would send us their electricity bills before and after VMware and looking at how much energy was saved. I think uh, IDC did a study that over the life of VMware's history, we have saved enough energy to you know, feed about 40% of the U.S. homes with energy. So that's, it's an incredible ROI saving that the data centers of the world have effectively been able to do. And then from that, we have now been able to expand to many other markets, primarily security, cloud computing, you know, the modern digital workplace and the workplace transformation. So a number of other key markets, but it's one of the, I think personally, one of the greatest software companies of all time has pioneered something that's incredibly innovative. I think the culture is incredibly unique. We've taken great pains to build a company that's sort of built to last because, you know, in addition to innovation, we are customer obsessed and we hire some of the best people who really like to win as a team. So many of these things sort of create that indispensable core fabric to this very special company called VMware. It's amazing all the different areas that you touch on, including, as we've seen over the last decade, this huge trend of moving all sorts of services over to the cloud. And, and then COVID hit, and COVID was this massive accelerant on those trends. Like I've talked to so many companies that have said they've seen five years of growth in five months. So how has COVID accelerated the shift for companies and organizations moving over to the cloud and accelerating some of their virtualization plans? Yeah, I think when I was thinking about this last year, this time, I wrote a blog that your listeners are welcome to read. It's on LinkedIn. Arena Huffington actually reposted it on her platform called My Predictions of 2020. I started off reflecting on the last 12 months. A year ago this time, I was preparing to go to the World Economic Forum. Actually, it's the last time I actually got an international flight. And this was 5,000 people meet, meeting in the small little village in Switzerland. Everyone was packed. Nobody was wearing masks. I'm sure COVID was spreading its way through the village. And how quickly our world has changed. In February, at that time, there wasn't much 
any discussion of it being a global pandemic. There was, there was some concern about this early forms of the virus that they'd heard. But then very quickly in February, things changed. I remember one weekend in February, we were deciding whether to have our big kickoff event, which is 17,000, 20,000 people were going to come first to Las Vegas, then we were going to go to Barcelona, and then to Singapore. We're going to do three different events for the bulk of our field organization. And over one weekend, we were watching the numbers, watching the World Health Organization and the CDC, and we decided to just basically can the event and do it all virtually. And from that, our life has changed. We quickly moved to a work from home. Obviously, the country went into shelter in place in many states like California. We were one of the early investors in technologies like Zoom. So we were able to quickly pivot. We gave our employees an allowance to you know, buy uh, equipment for their home. Many of them took their monitors and their desktops, and we started to become productive. And I told our employees, and we told our employees two simple things. Number one, your health and safety is the most important thing beyond the profits of VMware. The profits of VMware wait for your health and safety. In other words, if you've got COVID, get well. If you've got family members who are sick, take care of them. But that if you are healthy, we don't know how long this could last. I said, I don't think it lasts six years like the last time the, you know, World War II lasted six years. I think this might be six months, 12 months, 18 months, but we should turn our attention to our customers. And it's amazing how customers came to us asking for help. There was a fast move into the cloud, which is the source of your question. People said, we're working from home. We needed better ways to be able to work remotely with virtualization technology like virtual desktops, security. And we, in doing that, we began to really help our customers. And what has happened is you know, largely because you don't want to have to put more emphasis on a data center if you can't send your employees there. There's been a faster shift to the, move, to the cloud. We've seen that reflected in our you know, performance in the, you know, the first three quarters that we announced publicly, an acceleration, 39%, 40 40% of our subscription in SaaS. We talked about our cloud business being about a billion-dollar ARR business and accelerating our partnership with Amazon and other clouds, but primarily Amazon, our preferred partner, but then also Azure. And Google and Oracle and IBM, Alibaba, everyone was embracing VMware. The whole idea was to move these workloads you know, efficiently into the cloud so that it could be migrated there, but then modernized also with some of the great technologies that we were building that allowed you to build cloud-native apps faster. So all of this began to see a tremendous increase in momentum, and VMware is in this sort of very enviable position of being this trusted broker that could then tell customers as an advisor to them, okay, now that your preferred cloud is Amazon, let's help you get VMware workloads in there, build a bridge. If you want to invest more, not just in your current data center, keep that safe, but then also at the edge, as we saw companies like FedEx doing. The conversations, uh, John, that we began to have over the last 12 months have been profound. And I feel really honored and excited that VMware is at the core of that cloud computing revolution. It's amazing. I know one of the sectors that has seen some of the most significant transformation as a result of COVID has been in telemedicine. That, as you were saying, the moment shelter-in-place orders were invoked, it just was impossible for people to go see their doctors. And the only way many could access care was through different types of telemedicine. And this became enabled through some regulatory changes at HHS, and I know with the states, but I know you've been part of some pilots to help sort of enable this shift over to telemedicine. Talk a little bit about those pilots and what have you seen and what have you learned as that shift has occurred? Yeah, John, I think if you look at what's happened, all the regulatory hurdles that were there that would have taken years to be able to solve through 
got resolved in days and weeks, no, no more than a few months because this was so important. You know, I've got elderly parents who now live in the United States and it's just, you know, for a lot of the type of treatment and consultation, it can be done over the phone, maybe even through a video call. And we began to talk to a lot of our hospitals. Healthcare is one of our, our top four or five verticals. And I began to talk to a lot of our hospitals, both CIOs and chief medical officers, and we began to see a pattern. 90, 95% of their visits were now going virtual. They, of course, had to, you know, really focus on the intensive care for COVID-related cases. So a lot of their discretionary, you know, surgical work was kind of deferred. I mean, that has some pros and cons. There are people who genuinely need, you know, work done and heart disease and other kinds of things like stroke continue to be, you know, concerns as people health, but a lot of the concern at the top level of priority was COVID. And in that world of telemedicine, we began to see new companies started to form and you saw the big merger of Teladoc and Livongo. It's amazing how telemedicine now I think is going to be a huge part of our future. I found myself, you know, even dialoguing, I'm a fairly healthy person, but even for the things that I needed, I could dialogue a lot more effectively through the specialized application that Palo Alto Medical Foundation, my healthcare provider had done. Kaiser was very effective here. And we began to talk to many of these folks and we asked them, how could we help them? We aren't a telemedicine core infrastructure player ourselves, like Teladoc or Livongo. We, they're often our customers. But we felt there was a couple of things we could do. Number one, as those companies focus on their employees working remotely, because they had to, in many cases, have their white collar IT staff, and sometimes even doctors work remotely from home, we wanted to be the digital first responder to them, the true first responders in their serving their patients. And we began to see that. MD Anderson, there's a public use case of how they began to use our software-defined WAN, you know, kind of capabilities from VeloCloud to better allow employees to work from home. You know, we had Mayo Clinic also doing similar things in terms of virtual desktops and a variety of other ways in which, you know, it's been amazing how they're doing things. And then hospital after hospital depends on our virtualization technology to allow virtual desktops to operate so that employees could get access to particular apps they need, or doctors could get access to medical records apps for their patients. And that's obviously a confidential application that the patient and the doctor uses to track the medical records of a particular patient. So security is very important, but those medical record apps are really kind of like that system of record for a patient. We needed to make sure those could work remotely in a very secure way, even if that doctor or in a particular professional was working potentially from home or work from anywhere. And we are one of those companies that pioneered this work from anywhere concept in our end user computing work six, seven years ago. And becoming a leader in that space, we began to see tremendous opportunity for us to just serve these hospitals. And similarly, we began to serve also some of the life sciences companies. I know we'll probably talk about that later in your podcast, but the life sciences companies that were working in vaccine research were also part of this entire healthcare supply chain, so to speak. So whether it was hospital providers, payers, insurance companies, life sciences company or pharmacies who are more kind of on the retail side, that entire supply chain now, if they were working remotely or needed to be on the front lines of helping patients or consumers with their health and safety, VMware was that critical infrastructure behind it to help them do that safe and secure. And then, you know, kind of amazing new use cases. We began to see some hospitals set up kind of parking lots with surge capacity of beds in their parking lots, a parking garage, and they needed network acceleration into those parking lots, we became that infrastructure to help this sort of surge capacity happen. You saw that happen in, in certain hospitals and in, in you know, big convention centers. So all of these are places where IT had to stretch to allow hospitals 
who are at their breaking point to better serve patients who are in need. I've been making great use of One Medical. They have a video platform that lets me sort of get access to care and COVID tests. And it's just been amazing. I never want to go back to, to some of the traditional ways. And now having experienced telemedicine, you were mentioning some of the work you've been doing in life sciences. And I know it's been hard given the gravity and the everything that we've been dealing with, with the economic, racial inequities and COVID-related deaths and hospitalizations. But we've also just experienced this incredible moonshot research effort where people were able to decode the genome of the virus, and Moderna was able to develop a vaccine in less than a year. And that's just amazing that usually vaccines take up to seven years to develop and be tested and be released. But I know you have a partnership with Moderna. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, it's been incredible to get to know that company. I didn't know who Moderna was before this. Stefan Bansal, the CEO there, was a few years behind, sorry, after me at, at, at Harvard Business School. So I'd heard his name. We have a common board member. But as they happened to come in, I was tracking very closely some of the security work we were doing them to help protect their devices. And I told our team, we have got to make them successful in protecting their employees and their, because they are doing a job to protect the world. So again, sort of this, with this principle of we are the digital first responders behind the scenes, helping the true first responders. We got together with Stefan Bansal's team and we really helped them protect their devices. So we're being used as the management security solution. It's two technical solutions called Workspace One and Carbon Black that really help protect their employees' devices so that in turn, their medical professionals and their researchers and their scientists can work really fast and effectively from anywhere to help them. So we began this very early on last year. And we got to know that company well. We began to ask them how we could continue to help them as they developed digital technology. And from our perspective, Stefan's message was very simple. Listen, I'm not an IT expert. Please work with my IT team to make sure that all of our digital technologies work because we need to free up the time to have no obstacles at all for our scientists to be able to get the vaccine out in record time. And this is, you know, Operation Warp Speed. So just watching behind the scenes as we were just getting to know this company and then, you know, Stefan's been such a gracious CEO to share his perspective and his time with us at VMworld. He gave a 30-minute fireside chat that was visible to the world. And then he also did a, you know, we did an event with our CXO council, our top C-level customers, where, you know, just having him talk about vaccines. And because everyone now has been kind of talking about messenger RNA and some of these things, you know, cell biology, something all of us are boning up on. And the amazing thing about messenger RNA, it's so, it's so technology and software kind of driven that I felt it was almost sort of software defining cell biology, the same way that we've been software defined in the data center. So I almost joked, my own learning about messenger RNA has helped me understand how even the biological world is increasingly becoming a key part to the way in which digital technology software, and especially, is going to revolutionize things like the life sciences and cell biology. And I think if we're going to have future cures to other major diseases who are even more complex than this virus, whether it's Alzheimer's, whether it's various forms of cancer, things that have been just impossible, it's going to happen because digital technology, artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data algorithms work on large amounts of genome sequenced data. And from that, we are able to discover things that could be a possible cure. And I hope in the next nine, 10 years, in our next decade, we will have advances in life sciences, and this will be the, the beginning of some significant investment and cracking the code on some worse diseases than COVID. COVID was, it wasn't a major, I mean, it wasn't as 
debilitating and life-threatening as Alzheimer's, but because it's so contagious, and once it gets inside your lungs, of course, it could kill you. We've lost so many people, unfortunately, and it's been so tragic. But there are some really chronic diseases that have you know, riddled humanity for thousands of years. And I hope that this is the beginning of incredible innovation in life sciences that cure some of those diseases too. And I mentioned too, you know, different forms of cancer and Alzheimer's. So my hope is whether it's Moderna or other companies in life sciences, many of them are customers, whether it's Pfizer, others, we want to make sure they're all successful. This takes amazing thing also is to, when you talk to many of the C-level executives of these life sciences companies, they all, all want each other. This isn't, I mean, there's competition, but they all want each other to win because it takes a village to be able to supply vaccines to the entire world. So we want every company, whether it's Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson Johnson, GSK, anybody who's working on this to be successful so that the world could have millions and billions of people potentially vaccinated, and then we could rid this particular virus, and then we're prepared for various strands of this in the, in the potential future. Yeah, and it's such a good point, too, that it's the technology that Moderna is pioneering here that may create paths to solving some of these other diseases that have just plagued the world for so many years. Shifting a little bit away from life sciences, one of the other huge challenges that we've seen COVID surface is that so many state government systems are still relying on legacy technology. At the moment that government shut down and shifted all their services remote, cracks began to form in the system. And we heard about people in long waiting lines to apply for unemployment benefits. We heard about websites crashing. The federal government's SBA lending platform for the paycheck protection loans crashed numerous times, just given the volume. How are you helping California with their shift to moving services over to the cloud, with their efforts on virtualization to better enable cloud-enabled government delivery of services? Yeah, John, you know, the public sector is one of our top verticals, just like healthcare. So we've worked with everybody from the federal, the military, civilian, all the departments at the federal level in almost every country, the U.S. being the biggest one of them, and then state local. So state of California has been a customer. I live in California, so I have a kind of a you know, keen interest as I've met with many of the key IT leaders there to help them be productive. I think it's always started, obviously, with work from home and ensuring that for their 15,000-odd employees in the state of California, we could effectively get them using our end-user computing products so that they could get virtual desktops, manage those, those whether it's laptop, tablets, and phones, and really make sure that they could, you know, be ready for a cloud-relevant. Increasingly, moving to the cloud is just the right thing for state locals. Because often, you know, the data, if it's proprietary personal data like healthcare, there's a lot more focus on security. But if it's websites and things of those kinds, there's no reason why a state and local government should invest in data centers and websites. It's just easier to do that in Amazon or Azure elsewhere. And as they did that, we began to really work. I mean, Governor Newsom expects 70% of the workforce to continue telecommuting post-pandemic. So, you know, we want to make sure that those applications now that they want to deliver to their citizens, their customers are citizens like you and me, we need to make sure that those applications are modernized. You know, the phone is an incredible way by which a citizen could give feedback. You could take a picture of a pothole and tell the government, hey, there's a road here that needs to be fixed, or you can quickly be able to track and give input. I mean, it's amazing now the FBI has all of this digital trail from the Capitol riot of people who were there because it's all on video. And if the citizens could help, we could keep the place safe and more productive. Cloud technology is becoming an important part. Our partnership with the hyperscalers, Amazon, Azure, Google, 
there's particular interest from the state of California to use those technologies. And there's nobody better than VMware to get the best of the private cloud. Those are on-premise data centers and the public cloud, because often the public cloud companies are competing with each other. Security is a big focus for the government because they don't want their employees hacked and certainly then spreading potential security breaches to the rest of the you know, citizens of their apps that have not been built well. So all of this means that you know, whether you're building new cloud native apps and the use of our technologies like Tanzu, where we're helping many, many federal, state, and local governments, or whether it's the movement to the cloud or security, these are all areas where practically every one of the big states, whether it's California or any of the other big states with a fairly big IT budget, we can help them. We've also hired some you know, former C-level people who are maybe former CIOs, and we're increasingly focusing on these verticals, whether it's banking, telco, you know, healthcare, and public sector. So we then have people within our company who have been formerly CIOs in that sector who can then appeal to people who are now in their peer group, state and local, and explain to them how, from their experience, VMware technology could help them. So this sort of birds of a feather sort of notion of helping peer states understand what they're doing best so that we can compare, contrast. It always takes a village. And the more that you can illustrate to customers what other companies are doing that are best practice in their vertical, the more likely you're going to be able to earn their trust. It's that translation role of helping to kind of understand like what are the challenges state government is facing and translate all these different ways you're enabling these types of services and computing and how that can be applied there. But there's also, it's a great pivot into security. You mentioned this in relation to telemedicine, where obviously there's very sensitive electronic health records with personal information. Governments obviously have lots of sensitive, personal identifiable information and sensitive records. And even more recently, we just learned last week that European vaccine regulators had been hacked and some of the data have been taken and manipulated as a way of feeding doubt into some of the, the vaccines over in Europe. So security is so paramount in here. What, what do you think are needed in terms of strategies and policies to help protect data from cyber attacks? And how, how is VMware going about adding that extra layer of security and protection too? I think, John, that's a great question. Obviously, even while code was happening, the bad guys weren't sitting still nation state actors were continuing to plot months and months, you know, almost like a terrorist attack. You have to look at these nation state actors like 9-11. They may not, there may not be a loss of three, 4,000 lives on this particular day, like a sad event, like 9-11 or the vaccine. But imagine if the security people were able to breach into a nuclear plant or into something that set off something biological or nuclear that caused the hundreds and thousands of lives. So there's absolutely, we have to look at this as serious as that. Solar winds was an example of something that happened towards the end of the year, but there was weeks and months of plotting by nation state actors. And prior to that, WannaCry and Petra affected companies, you know, coming again out of the Eastern European theater and affecting many, many companies and causing economic havoc. So we feel the new approach is needed to security because having all these point tools to secure yourself is almost like trying to bandage your way through building a house or you're trying to stay healthy by eating 5,000 tablets. A new approach is needed where security is a lot more intrinsic. It's you know, kind of almost built into your diet. You stay healthy by eating vegetables, fruit, proteins, and then you know, brushing your teeth, doing cyber hygienic things. So the first thing that we felt we, and we've been talking about this for several years, is you need a zero trust, intrinsically secure platform as opposed to point tools. Platforms win any day over tools. And the platform, while modular, 
needs you to be able to connect from the network to the endpoint of the cloud, reason of a vast amount of data. And we set out to building that platform many years ago, and it's really doing well, the VMware security platform. And cybersecurity, we're emerging now as a clear leader. The other thing we began to do is educate you know, the more novice people in the world on cyber hygienic rules. It's just like brushing your teeth. There's certain things that we should all do. Multi-factor authentication. What does that mean? Set up a second factor of authentication than just your password. And certainly don't put your passwords in pieces of paper or on files that people could easily hack into. When you set a second factor, whether it's your mother's maiden name or a secret code or, you know, last four digits of social security, or maybe even on your phone, your fingerprint or your retina scan, it's very hard. It's make it harder for people to hack. And there's a lot of encryption that's been done to make that harder. And everybody should be doing that. Patching your systems of your corporate systems and people say, hey, there's a bug. Patch immediately. If you need to get rid of components that are viability risk. Third, segmenting, what's called segmentation or micro-segmentation, where you segment certain apps and provide least privileged access to only the people who need those, and everybody else doesn't get access to those types of apps. That's a, that's a technology called segmentation. These were all things that we did well as a company, but we needed to also educate the more casual, novice user of some of these concepts so that we all got smarter in security. So while the security professionals, chief security officers and others would be the experts, everybody needs to have some one-on-one knowledge of cyber hygiene rules and security. We set out to doing that. And our goal is to become a, a, a cybersecurity leader. And this is an area where we think VMware has tremendous opportunity to clean up a lot of very fragmented elements of you know, what happens in the space today. So important. I know we're close to time. I just want to ask you two last questions first. Shifting topics completely, but you have just announced a commitment as a company to close the workforce gender gap by 2030. Talk a little bit about what led to that goal and why you're planning such a firm stake in in terms of meeting it. Yeah, I think, listen, you want diversity and inclusion. You know, diversity is about making sure there's appropriate representation. Inclusion is about ensuring that those people are at the table. So first off, you want those people to join the company, and then you want them to be at the table. And it's largely because, listen, let's talk about one segment that's underrepresented in tech companies today, women. You know, all of us have a mother. We may not all have a daughter, but we all have a mother. Ask yourself, would your mother or your, if you have a daughter, be comfortable or welcome at the company when they come to your company because they look around and they see other people like them? Most tech companies, certainly the software companies, are 25, 30% women, which is significantly less than society, which is you know, roughly 50, some, little, some parts of the world, even a little more than 50% women. So if my daughter, Sophia, or my wife, Kathy, my mom, Annie, were, any of them were to come to the tech industry and they felt unwelcome, they're like, VMware is not the type of company I want to work for, or another big tech name. Well, because there's only a few women there and you guys are all prejudiced and you are all got unconscious bias. That's not the kind of company I want to work for because I want my family and friends to feel good. So I tell everybody, this isn't, you know, when you make it personal, you understand why you want to make this company appealing to the people you love. And then, you know, when you have diversity of ideas, whether it's women, and let's take another underrepresented minority, African-Americans are about 10, 12% of U.S. society, but often in many tech companies, three or 4%, Latinos, 20% in U.S. society, 3 4% in tech companies. So we have to, as leaders, change this, not just at the you know, level where people are coming in, what I'd call individual contributor, entry-level jobs, but at layers up the management ranks too. And when you do it in the management ranks, often many of those people can be role models because you know, they look at a senior vice president woman 
who is, I don't know, a chief marketing officer or a chief people officer and say, I want to be like her one day. Or they look at an underrepresented minority that's in another senior position and say, wow, I could do that too. And you go and recruit, not just from a specific school that, you know, mints out a certain type of white males, let's say Caucasians males, but, you know, it's nothing wrong with us men, but also folks who are, you know, more women in technology, more African-Americans. So you recruit from those type of schools too. So I think all of this made us ask ourselves, what type of world do we want to create in 2030? And set out some of those 30 kind of key goals, one of which is obviously, and you know, this is never a substitute for competence. There are plenty of competent people who are women or underrepresented minorities. You have to go and find them. And as you do that, you encourage your workforce to go and recruit, not from the same places they're always recruiting, but to not just recruit, but also groom and retain and grow so that we ensure that the company starts to look like society. And I think when you do that, you get a better world. And this is obviously a polarizing debate because when you say this, there's counterpoints to this and valid counterpoints. So we want to be listening to all sides of this. But then I think it's incumbent on leadership to take a stand and showcase the world that's going to be brighter for the future. And then also train our internal people on unconscious bias. I mean, all of us, me included, have unconscious bias. If I'm cutting people off because I'm in a more senior position, I've got to step back and be quiet and listen. So all of these require us to take that class on unconscious bias, be aware of 360 feedback that could give us feedback on what we could do better, have those systems in our life, you know, of people who give us feedback of what we could do better. And when we do that, I think we build not just a better company, but a better community. Yeah, it's amazing to think about the catalytic effect this will have. You will recruit people to VMware, they'll become part of this culture, and then they will go off and they'll have their own startups, so they'll become part of other companies. And it's just going to be amazing to see how catalytic just this one commitment is to all of the tech sector years from now. You've been so generous with your time. I just want to, last question, but so many of our listeners are policymakers from the states, they're policymaker staff, and they listen to this podcast. What are some of the policies? Like, what are some things that you think policymakers need to do to help accelerate innovation at this moment to drive economic growth for communities around the country? Well, John, thank you for that question. I mean, we're recording this session on January 19th as a day before the inauguration of President-to-be Biden and Vice President-to-be Kamala Harris. And I think top of mind is going to be COVID. Clearly, it's, we're still not yet past the point. We still have record number of deaths and cases. It's so sad. I mean, I've had to go to funerals and memorial services on Zoom. And, you know, that's the time you want to give somebody a hug and you can't. So I think everything we could do behind the scenes, like I said earlier, we are digital first. We're not a vaccine producer, a vaccine manufacturer. We're not a hospital ourselves, but we are critical infrastructure that those companies depend on. So we have to do our job to be the best infrastructure, digital first responder to the first responders. And whether it's the places we're working on with all the companies we've talked to, Moderna, Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, Johnson Johnson, just help any of them with anything they need from us. Help as companies are doing things with making their public sector more, more amenable to doing things easily. Digital passports, we're doing some of that in Australia. Contact tracing applications that many healthcare organizations are building with our help. You know, the US Space Force and Air Force are using our Tanzu platform to help track inventory and supply for pharmacies. And Sporting goods companies are building e-commerce sites. All of this is happening during the midst of COVID. And then I think as we, we continue to think about digital transformation, everybody ought to be building more modernized apps. 
on their websites, on their phones, use of digital technologies, ways by which phones could capture things like photos and geolocation, and just get rid of a lot of the legacy ways in which we were doing things at the clients over here and drive mobile and cloud to a much more modern experience for how people interact. That would be the second thing. And then third, we could build on and on upon our cybersecurity initiative. I think security is going to be super important given telehealth, telework, teleeducation. When we think about how the security environment is broken that led to some of these things like WannaCry, Petya, SolarWinds, we've really got to flatten the cybersecurity curve where everybody has a knowledge of how this could be treated almost like a cyber vaccine. And then I think, you know, a few other things, 5G is going to become super important. You know, all of us working remotely or in cars or remotely will need access to the ability by which those things can be done faster and better. And I'm not talking just about playing games and watching video, although streaming videos is important and entertainment is good. But I'm talking about remote surgeries, self-driving cars, smart cities, all of these things where undeserved communities could get the better access of 5G that's priced very competitively. And US, the U.S. needs to be at the forefront. We should not allow another country to become the closed garden ecosystem to 5G. And I'm not naming it specific ones, but we know the risks that happen in the world of the U.S. I came to this country as an immigrant. And I came here because this country has the most incredible software engineers, has some of the most incredible innovation. And if you work hard, anything's possible. And that needs to continue to be the case where the 18-year-old Sanjay, I came here when I was 18, but the 18-year-old Sanjay of today is, sees the United States as a place where they're attracted to. And those could also be people who are currently growing up in this country. And then finally, sustainability is important. We need to build a better society for the next 10, 15 years for well after we've all retired and we get older and get into that sort of 70-something age group, we need to build a better society. And that means taking carbon footprint all of these aspects of sustainability, very important. That's kind of part of the reason we set these 30 goals for 2030. So I hope your listeners enjoyed this session, John. I hope it was helpful to you. The most important thing, I think, in this season of IRA to end on a positive note is it's so much better to give than to receive. I tell you, it's the type of life principle I've lived by. It's so much better to be a servant leader than to be a command and control dominant leader. When you build a society where people are giving back, you're happier. I can tell you that. When you build a leadership organization where you aren't sort of this command and control, you know, there was a time in the era for General Patton. But today, the world is looking for people who are servant leaders. I think you build a better society overall. Well, Sanjay, we are just so appreciative of the time you gave us today and for the inspiration, too, from servant leadership to all the different ways that you are helping people through this period of disruption with COVID, but coming out hopefully better and better together. So we're grateful for you. Thanks so much for spending a few minutes with us. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tech Enabled. Special thanks to Sanjay Poonin. I'd also like to thank this week's producers, Olivia Leslie and Abigail Gadera. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider rating it and reviewing on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with this podcast visibility, and we always appreciate the feedback. Thanks for listening.